0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester and is part six of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. Well, good morning. My name is Will Chester. I'm the youth pastor here. It's a pleasure to, to have you with us. If you're just joining us today, we're in a, a summer series looking at the minor prophets. So the minor prophets are a, a group of books in the Old Testament. They're usually shorter and uh, and they speak some, some harsh words, some challenging words to the people of God. And uh, I mean, it's not, not exactly light morning reading to dig into the prophets. And for some people, this is too much. This is too much for them. And it was, a few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who had left his Christian faith and was reflecting back on it. He was, he was angry, he was bitter. He felt like he had lost years of his life. And he said, he said to me, Will, aren't you just tired of feeling guilty all the time? Aren't you just f- tired of feeling bad about yourself all the time? I mean, his picture of God was, was this angry and vindictive God that was pointing out all of his mistakes and just laying them upon his shoulders. And finally, he, he had just had enough. He said, I'm not doing this anymore. He said, look, life is messy. We make mistakes, and we just move on. That was his response, this feeling of guilt. And I'm concerned about that because I know that there are many of us, even here in this room, who would describe our spiritual lives in a similar way. We constantly feel racked by guilt, even worshiping here week after week after week. My friends write about something. We're not meant to live that way. It's no way to live. But I'm concerned about the alternative because as some people have noted, there is a, what they call strange persistence of guilt in our society. Even among non-religious, non-Christian people, there's a persistence of guilt. And here's how it goes. Through technology, I mean, we, we understand more than ever how our actions right here in the United States and Wheaton even affect people all around the globe. And we see pictures of suffering on the TV and we know that we have the resources to get on a plane to fly there and do something about that suffering. And we don't. And this writer goes on, he says, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it's never as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough. It doesn't matter if I drive a Prius, it doesn't matter if my wife drives a Prius, too. Their innumerable pre-I could not diminish our carbon footprint enough. I can't give to the poor enough. I can't support medical research enough. And then you add to that these, these systems that we benefit from. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There is an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. Who can stand under that kind of guilt? And most of us find that we can't. And so we move into denial or despair because we can't sit with that guilt. We simply can't do it. And so that's the question I want to bring to Micah this morning. That's the question I want to bring to this prophet. What do we do with our guilt? And Christian and non-Christian alike have to answer this question. And this morning, what we're going to see is that in Micah, we meet a God, yes, of judgment, but also of mercy. We meet a God of judgment and mercy who exposes our sin so that we can be healed. And this is the good news that our culture needs to to hear. Because right now there's a reckoning happening, right? And there's blame being cast all around. You never know who's going to drop next. And most of that blame, or much of that blame, is well-placed. It's deserved. But our culture doesn't know how to do the other part, the mercy part, the restoration part. How do you assign true and proper guilt to somebody but then bring them to a place of healing where they don't have to bear that guilt for the rest of their lives? So what Micah shows us is that guilt isn't a dead end. It's not a condition that we just bear under our whole lives. We don't need to look for detours around it. Rather, our, your guilt can be a temporary and indispensable bridge To living in the embrace of a merciful God. I'll say that again. Your guilt can be a temporary and indispensable bridge towards living in the embrace of a merciful God. It's the mercy of the Lord that gives us courage to face our guilt head on and also be freed from it. That's where we're headed this morning. So first, we're going to talk about how God exposes our sins so that we can be healed. Second, we're going to talk about some of these some of these responses like denial and despair that keep us trapped in guilt. And finally, we're going to look at how God's mercy frees us from guilt. So let's jump in. Who's Micah? We don't know much about Micah, but we learn a couple things. In the first verse, we learn that he's from Morasheth, which is a village out in the country. And so Micah is a he's a country boy. And yet he's called to speak to the capital cities of, of Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem. This one, two nations that, that once were one nation and should be one nation. He's called to speak to them and he's called to, to give a challenging message. Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, As for me, I'm filled with power, I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice, with might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So what's the sin of Israel and Judah? Well, there are two things, and these two things come up over and over again in the prophets. And they correspond to what Jesus called the greatest commandment. So when some folks asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, there's two. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor. And so the two sins that Micah is going to put before the people of God is their idolatry, their sin against God, and injustice, sin against their neighbor. Micah says that the high place, the place where uh, idolatrous worship has started to happen is in the very temple, is in Jerusalem. It's this disease that's come all the way home. And one of the reasons that idolatry is so attractive in the ancient world is that you could remain a quote-unquote true worshiper of the one God and add in idolatry as well. You could add in worship of these other gods to make sure that you had enough children or to make sure that your, your finances increase through your crops and yet still be a faithful worshiper week after week. And that's why it's such a parallel for our own idolatries today, whether that's an idolatry around financial security or an idolatry around being in the in-circle, in the in-crowd in our neighborhood or our school, or whether that's an idolatry around you know, a passionate, romantic life, these things that we feel like we deserve, these things that we, we come to depend on more than we depend on the Lord. They can, they can become part of our lives even as we worship week after week in this room. And so Micah looks forward to the day when, as it says in chapter one, verse seven, when all of Israel and Judah's carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her idols laid waste. Israel is purified of these things that lead her astray. And secondly, Micah Micah talks about injustice. And so at the time that Micah is prophesying, you have the tiny nations of Israel and Judah, and they're surrounded by this huge world superpower of Assyria. And as Assyria comes closer and closer and closer in this time of international anxiety, the position of the poor gets more and more fragile. Refugees are starting to come into Judah's midst. And the, power, the people in power, the people with, in a position to be able to help the poor, to harbor them, instead of doing that, start to build the cities on their blood. And so they want something and they take it. Micah says in chapter two, verse one, they covet fields and they seize them. They want houses, they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Micah says, woe to these people. It's because of you that destruction is coming. So why does God care so much about Israel's sins? Why does it bother him so much? It's because Israel is not meant to be like the other nations. Israel is meant to be this channel through which God's blessing would flow and then flow out to all of the other nations. Israel is meant to, be, to, uh, to bring healing to the world, to receive blessing on behalf of others and for others. And she can't do that if she's suffering the same sickness as the other nations. And so Micah looks forward to this day in chapter 4, verse 2, when many peoples and many nations shall come into Israel, the Israel that's meant to be. And they'll say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that the Lord may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. And decide disputes for strong nations far away. I mean, don't you long for this? Don't you long for this when you, when you hear news reports about literally thousands of Nigerian Christians. Our brothers and sisters. People who have visited this church. We hear about thousands of Nigerian Christians losing their lives in conflict with Fulani herdsmen. Don't you long for a judge who can step in and put an end to that violence? Don't you long for a judge who can step in in these these economic disputes between large and powerful nations and can establish fair economic practices that bring a competitive balance to the world, not so that one nation can keep their power, but so that all nations have an equitable chance at flourishing? Don't you long for a judge who can step in and allow all peoples to prosper? That is what Israel is meant to be. That is why God cares so much about her sin. And so Micah sees this day when the nations don't need swords anymore, they don't need spears anymore, and they turn them into agricultural tools, garden hooks, He says, nation won't lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then this beautiful line that's sung in the Hamilton musical, and every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, where every person is able to enjoy the fruit of their labors in peace under the shade of what the Lord has provided. That is what Israel is meant to be on behalf of the world. And this is why God cares so much about what's holding them back from that. This is why God brings judgment. But Israel, as you know, they can't hear it. I mean, some of them do. That's why I included this passage uh, in your sermon notes from another book in the Bible where it says that King Hezekiah, one of these kings that Micah was speaking to, King Hezekiah heard this word of judgment, and he didn't close his ears. He listened to it, and he repented. And for a little while, the Lord relented from bringing disaster upon Israel. But if you know the story, I mean, Hezekiah stands out in that regard. For the most part, Israel doesn't listen. And in Micah, we get, we get just a few glimpses of how the people are responding. And what we see is it's, it's not so different than how you and I respond when someone has a critical word for us, when somebody has a word for us that brings up those feelings of guilt. We see Israel respond in denial and despair. What we find is that denial and despair, they don't help us deal with guilt, they trap us in guilt. Let's talk about denial. As you can guess, Micah's not a popular prophet And so when Micah Micah tells the truth that the bubble is about to burst, turn back now, people say things like, don't don't preach these things. Don't say these things. Chapter 2, verse 6. Disgrace will not overtake us. And they don't want to reckon with the consequences of their actions. They want to admit for a moment that, that things are bad. Really bad. And if they don't change course... They're going to reap the results of those decisions. in chapter three, verse 11, they, they bring religious language to their defense. They say, "Isn't the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster is going to come upon us. Isn't the Lord blessing this?" And they want to hear good news, not bad news. And, and so Micah, he laughs at them. He says, "You know what, you don't want a prophet like me. you don't want a prophet like me." You know the perfect prophet for you? You want a prophet who preaches about wine and strong drink. You want a prophet who says, hey, look, everybody, Benny's is having a sale 50% off all year long. That's the kind of prophet you want. He would be the preacher for this people. And do we not see ourselves in these, these efforts to avoid any critical words spoken to us? Avoid any word that brings up those feelings of guilt. Well, at least I'm not like this. It could be a lot worse. Isn't God blessing my circumstances? We want to shift blame to others so that we don't have to reckon with it ourselves. But guilt catches up to us, doesn't it? You can't outrun it. You can't deny it forever. You have to deal with it. And so then we see this other response in Micah the response of despair, where the guilt sets in, the judgment sets in, and they try to find ways to, to work around it, to pay off an angry God. And so they ask what is normally a good question, but, but their hearts are in despair. And so they, they say in Micah chapter 6, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? So what do you want, God? What do you want from me? How could I appease you? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old, these sacrifices that they've been commanded to give? And then it becomes absurd. They say, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of those sacrifices, a thousand rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What do you want from me? And I confess, I, I know this despair. I know this exasperation. When that critical word touches on a pattern of behavior in my life that I'm ashamed of, I fall into despair, and I want to I throw up every good thing I've ever done so that I don't, I don't break under the guilt that I feel. You hear it, haven't I done enough for this family? Don't you see how hard I work? Wasn't that a nice vacation that I brought us on? Don't I tithe enough? Don't I sacrifice enough? What do you want from me? And the Lord has this gentle but firm rebuke he says, he's told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness and love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's like what the psalmist says when the psalmist realizes the Lord doesn't want these great and grand sacrifices. He wants a broken and contrite spirit. And yet these are the very things that Israel refuses to give to the Lord. In her despair, these are the very things that she can't give. And so she tries to puff up her own righteousness to avoid that critical word. Denial and despair, they leave us trapped with guilt. But there is a way forward. There's a way to look at our guilt face-to-face, head-on, and be freed from it. And that's with God's mercy. Turn with me to Micah 7, verse 8. Micah speaks here at the end of the book as as a humbled and chastened Israelite. And he speaks on behalf of his people who have learned to come before God with a humble heart. And he says to these nations that might be laughing at what's become of Israel, he says, Rejoice not over me, verse 8, O my enemy. When, I've, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, when I sit in the darkness of my sin, even there the Lord will be a light to me. Even in the midst of that, even in the moment of my sin, the Lord will be a light to me, even in that darkest place. He accepts responsibility. For his own sin and for his people's sins. He says, verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. I'll bear it. And yet he's confident, even in that moment, of the Lord's mercy. He says, I'll bear it until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Micah understands that the Lord God is always a God of mercy even when the Lord brings a critical word. He is always a God of mercy. And even in the moment of our deepest darkness, even there, the Lord is your light. Micah shows us the true purpose of guilt. He shows us that that guilt has a directionality, as Philip Yancey says. True guilt is is a temporary condition that points us, directs us towards our sin, real as it is, directs us towards these systems of sin that we benefit from. And then towards a God of mercy who takes those sins, even the sins of our society, upon his shoulders and leads us into healing. It's never too late to call upon the Lord. And so let me just talk about about one barrier to receiving the Lord's mercy and to walking in this path of healing. You know, I, was, I was reading about a local pastor who's meeting with some college students who are struggling with their faith. And he asked them, he said, you know, tell me what, what topics should we talk about when we gather? And they kind of had the usual ones. They wanted to talk about, you know, for instance, the, the problem of evil and suffering and how do we wrap our minds around that. And then they said this. They said, "Could we have a week where we talk about habitual sin? Can we talk about habitual sin? Could we talk about those sins that we fall into maybe day after day, maybe week after week? We, we count the days in between our, our successes and our failures, but yet again we fall into them. A bad temper, a, a pattern of, of hurting people with our words, perhaps an addiction to substances, perhaps an, an addiction to inappropriate images on a screen. Could we have a day where we talk about that? And so they did, and the pastor asked them, he said, so, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with this, when you're dealing with habitual sin, as it seemed like many in that room were, as maybe some of us are this morning, reflecting back on, on our decision, decision-making even last night, how, how does the Lord look at you in that situation? And each of the students, one by one, expressed something like, it just feels like God is disappointed in me. I just live with this this general sense of disappointment, waiting for the next time where I screw up again. And And the pastor said, wait, but none of you said that even in this moment of darkness, none of you said, well, I know that the Lord loves me. He said, didn't all of you grow up in church? Didn't all of you grow up reading the Bible? They said, yeah, like I know he forgives me, but it was an intellectual thing. It wasn't something that had had made its way into their hearts. And so I want to speak to that this morning. If you are someone who is struggling with a habitual sin, a a pattern of grievous behavior, then the remedy for you isn't just to, to hear this word that I'm preaching this morning and try to convince yourself of it. It's not just to memorize these verses of Micah, even though that would be a good thing. But it's, it's to bring that pattern of behavior into the church. It's to bring that pattern of behavior that you're ashamed of, that you're embarrassed by, into a conversation with our pastoral staff. It's to bring that into a conversation with your res group leader or with, with other men or women that you trust, to expose it before others. Because the lie that you're working against is that if you do that, you're going to be met with judgment. And that is a lie. Lord willing, and yes, it's, it's happening even now, this church is a place of mercy. This church is a place where you can hear words of mercy face to face from Jesus Christ speaking through the body of Christ. You can can be healed from the lie that you can fix this on your own if you just keep it hidden away and keep chipping away at it. You can be healed from the lie that you'll have to deal with this your whole life. That's not true. That's a lie. The devil is a liar. He wants to tell you that you're going to be stuck in this sin for your whole life. You're going to be stuck with guilt your whole life. And that doesn't have to be true. Transformation in this life is possible now, you may be tempted your whole life. You're certainly not going to be perfect. But you do not have to bear under the weight of habitual sin. You don't have to bear under the weight of continual guilt. You can find healing. But you have to bring that pattern of behavior into the church, into the body of Christ, where you can be ministered to with flesh and blood, where these words can be applied to your heart. The assurance of mercy enables us to face our guilt head on so that we can be freed from it. My friend was right. You are not meant to bear guilt your whole life. Look at Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights steadfast love. He delights in showing mercy to you. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then Micah breaks out into the second person. He says, you, Lord, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have promised, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah is confident that God is not only a God of judgment, but he is a God of mercy who exposes our sins so that we can be healed. And you cannot experience mercy without facing your guilt. But what we find is you can't even look at your guilt unless you trust in the mercy of the Lord. And if you're waiting for that day when the Lord will plead your case, when he'll execute judgment on your behalf, Wait no longer, because the Lord Jesus Christ stands in heaven even today. He is our high priest. He is our advocate, pleading with the blood of the cross on your behalf, declaring that your sins have been cast into the sea. So let us not fear in looking at our guilt. Let us not fear in looking at those areas of our lives that bring us shame. Let us bring before Bring them before a merciful lord who invites us for our own healing and for the healing of this world in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen thanks for listening our vision at church of the resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation as part of that vision we love to share dynamic teaching original music and stories of transformation For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.